Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Intercepted. I'm Trevor Aronson, a contributing writer at The Intercept. Nearly 18 months ago, on January 6, 2021, an angry, violent mob of Donald Trump supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol in an effort to stop the peaceful transfer of power to Joe Biden, the clear winner of the 2020 presidential election. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. And whatever it takes, I'll lay my life down if it takes. Absolutely. That's why we showed up today. The rioters attacked police officers defending the U.S. Capitol. A Capitol police officer died on January 7th, the day after the mob attacked him. Two other police officers who responded to the riot committed suicide in the days following. Four Trump supporters also died during the melee at the Capitol. It was an insurrection. I saw it. You saw it. We all saw it, live on television. But Trump and his supporters have tried to convince us since then that we can't believe our lying eyes. Trump has tried to bend reality to his will, claiming, absurdly, that the crowd we all saw live on our screens wasn't full of violence, but instead, full of love. There was a lot of love. I've heard that from everybody. Many, many people have told me that was a loving crowd. Tucker Carlson, who hosts the top-rated show on Fox News, has promoted a ridiculous conspiracy theory that January 6th was a false flag attack secretly organized by Trump's shadowy enemies inside the FBI. But strangely, some of the key people who participated on January 6th have not been charged. Look at the documents. The government calls those people unindicted co-conspirators. What does that mean? Well, it means that in potentially every single case, they were FBI operatives. To be clear, the government doesn't call FBI agents or informants unindicted co-conspirators in court filings. And there's no evidence, zero, to support this FBI did it theory. In our very divided America, we now can't agree about what happened on January 6th. A Pew Research Center poll from February found that more than half of all Republicans believe Trump had no responsibility for the violence at the Capitol. What's unclear as I record this is whether public hearings about January 6th can break through in such a polarized America, as the Watergate hearings did nearly 50 years ago, ultimately shifting public opinion against President Richard Nixon. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. Last week, the House's select committee to investigate the January 6th attack began its public hearings to interview witnesses and released the results of its nearly year-long investigation. The first hearing was held on June 9th, live on television, in prime time. 
I'm Benny Thompson, chairman of the January 6, 2021 committee. I was born, raised, and still live in Bolton, Mississippi, a town with a population of 521, which is midway between Jackson and Vicksburg, Mississippi, and the Mississippi River. I'm from a part of the country where people justify the actions of slavery, the Ku Klux Klan, and lynching. I'm reminded of that dark history as I hear voices today try and justify the actions of the insurrectionists on January 6, 2021. Every major American news channel aired the first hearing live, with the notable exception of Fox News, whose evening shows have shamelessly promoted the preposterous lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. The members of the January 6th committee, which includes two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, have made it clear that they intend to present evidence that, they believe, shows that January 6th was a violent, attempted coup organized and led by President Trump. Here's Representative Cheney during the first hearing. As you will see in the hearings to come, President Trump believed his supporters at the Capitol, and I quote, were doing what they should be doing. This is what he told his staff as they pleaded with him to call off the mob, to instruct his supporters to leave. The goal of the House Select Committee appears to be to make a public case that Trump is a would-be autocrat who's personally, and perhaps criminally, responsible for unleashing a violent mob whose aim was to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Using testimony from former Trump officials and campaign staff, the January 6th committee revealed how Trump had been told, in no uncertain terms, that there wasn't significant evidence to support claims of voter fraud, including by his attorney general, Bill Barr. I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public were bull- was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit. Yet the Trump campaign raised more than $250 million in donations by leveraging false claims of voter fraud under the moniker the Official Election Defense Fund. But as House investigators have revealed, there was no such fund. The money went into a political action committee Trump controlled. Here's California Representative Zoe Lofgren, a member of the House Select Committee. President Trump used the lies he told to raise millions of dollars from the American people. These fundraising schemes were also part of the effort to to disseminate the false claims of election fraud. But happening in parallel to this House Select Committee probe is an investigation by the Justice Department, the largest in the department's history. That investigation has happened as self-appointed Internet sleuths such as the organization Sedition Hunters, have taken it upon themselves to find and republish videos and photos from the Capitol riot and attempt to identify alleged rioters. These volunteers think they're doing good, but they're participating in a strange form of Internet vigilantism that, in some ways, has shaped the Justice Department's response to the Capitol riot. So far, the Justice Department has charged more than 800 people with criminal charges for their alleged roles in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Federal prosecutors appear to be grouping the defendants into two buckets. The first includes Trump supporters who were there that day, appear to have been swept up in the hysteria and violence of the moment, and entered the U.S. Capitol spontaneously. Many of these defendants face only misdemeanor charges. The second includes members of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, two violent domestic extremist groups who support Trump. Recently, prosecutors have charged 16 members of these two groups with seditious conspiracy, alleging that they planned their attacks on the Capitol as part of an organized effort to help Trump hold on to power. Today on Intercepted, I'm joined by two people who have closely followed and tracked the January 6th prosecutions. Margot Williams, my colleague here at The Intercept, and Michael Lodenthal, the executive director of the Prosecution Project, which tracks criminal prosecutions involving political violence. As pundits have speculated endlessly on cable news about January 6th and its fallout, Williams and Lodenthal are among those you haven't heard from yet. 
They are among the researchers at news organizations, think tanks, and universities who have been keeping their heads down, collecting court records about the January 6th prosecutions, entering information in the databases, and trying to answer a question. What do the prosecutions tell us about what happened on January 6th? And what can they tell us about how the Justice Department, one of our nation's most important institutions, investigates and prosecutes a crime that some argue may lead back to Donald Trump. I started by asking Margot to explain a bit about the databases she has been working on throughout her career and how she's been following the January 6th prosecutions. I have been working on databases for many years. I am the research editor at The Intercept, but before that, I was at The Washington Post and The New York Times, where I created the Guantanamo Docket Database on the Guantanamo detainees starting in 2002. I started collecting names, and then on, in 2007, I believe it went up online at the New York Times, and it's still there. Um, at The Intercept, Trevor, you and I worked together on the Trial and Terror Database, which is also an ongoing database that's downloadable of all the prosecutions since 9-11 in, in the war on terror in the U.S. So uh, it's just a natural for me for when this event happened on January 6th and I was watching, I immediately thought to start collecting the names of the people who would be arrested, later charged, uh, tried, and sentenced. And uh, I've been working with Michael on it. We share uh, our data together. Uh, I've only seen him in Zoom a couple of times in my life, but and we, we chat every day, multiple times. And we uh, uh, my database at The Intercept is not public yet because it's a work in progress, but Michael's is available to the public. Yeah, Michael, could you tell us how this database fits into your mission at the Prosecution Project? Sure. Um, so the Prosecution Project, just for a bit of background, began in 2017 as part of, a, I guess you'd call it an extracurricular engagement for, um, at the time, mainly undergraduate students at Miami University of Oxford, Ohio. And um, at the time, we were trying to kind of explain the discrepancy between two large uh, criminal cases. One was the so-called J-20 case, which is the arrest of 200-plus uh, uh, anarchists and anti-fascists who were disrupting the inauguration of Donald Trump in Washington, D.C., and comparing those to a recent slate of uh, white nationalist uh, violent crimes, including a few murders. And so we were trying to kind of explain the, the sentencing discrepancies between the two of these. We started collecting data on political prosecutions and received so much success from student engagement that we decided to continue it, you know, uh, now five years later. And so generally, Prosecution Project seeks to collect data on any political violence. So we would define that as terrorism, extremism, hate crimes, bias crimes, and political protest. So any form of political violence which is prosecuted in the United States since 1990 at the felony level. So that's a, a rather large pool of cases. So we, um, you know, like a funnel, kind of suck in hundreds of cases a month, uh, test those for, you know, whether or not they meet our inclusion criteria, and then uh, code them on the basis of about 55 variables. Now, this is done with a core team of about 40 volunteers, uh, many of whom are students, but not all of whom. And... All, you know, all of our work is, is verified. You know, we um, independently code things and we could go into all the, all the methodology stuff if folks are interested. But the capital cases fit into a growing portfolio we have of what, what I guess we would call event-driven kind of data sets. So we have the wider data set of, of nearly 10,000 cases in which we're looking at. But within that wider pool, we have some event-driven data sets. So we have, as Margot said, a public data set on the Capitol uh, rioters. We have a public data set on the summer 2020 George Floyd kind of uprising arrests. And then the rest of our kind of sub-data sets we provide on request to whomever. And we've provided those to everyone ranging from individual attorneys representing um, you know, clients in our data set to the Department of Defense to most mainstream large media outlets at this point, 
um, as well as you know a host of of governmental and non governmental bodies, um, social movement organizations, etc. What I'd like to ask both of you to start with is, you know, if we're to take a kind of bird's eye view of the January 6th prosecutions, we know that there are about 800 defendants. And and so starting with you, Margo, what are some of the highlights that you see in, in this database so far? Not from the database particularly, but from reading the charging documents and the statements of the defendants I mean, and, and the FBI agents who investigated the cases. I'm just amazed at the uh, number of resources that the U.S. government has devoted to pursuing these people, and that, to some extent, half of the cases just about are are just misdemeanor charges, the others being the felony charges, and to the extent in which they pursued people on these minor uh, charges, I mean, they did walk into the Capitol and they did cause disruption and destruction. But many of the charges are, are misdemeanors, for which I believe my opinion is that if they had arrested these folks on that day, as they did with the J-20 people, and uh, sorted it out when they were all being held, it, it would be uh, much uh, more effective and economic way of of pursuing people who had done these deeds. Instead, they're charging at a year and a half with people just were arrested yesterday in this case. It's they've been hunted down and and chased down and interviewed and uh, all kinds of stuff going on, which wouldn't have been uh, needed at all if they had just grabbed them in the building. So uh, that's that's what I'm noting. Uh, the number of misdemeanor cases. And also Michael had another part in his, in his data set. He also had the people who were arrested that day just by the Metropolitan Police Department. I'm not even keeping track of those. They just let arrested them and let them go. And uh, that adds another 80 people to the, to, the, to the case. And I don't know what happened to those people either. We haven't been able to follow up on it, I don't think, at all. Exactly. Yeah, I can speak to that. Um, from the kind of bird's eye view at present, and, and as Margot said, Margot and I have been sharing, um, you know, court court related event data literally every day for the past you know year plus. Um, so you know, there's always a bit of a delay in us catching up to things. But as of today, as of right now, um, Prosecution Project is tracking 829 federal cases which includes three cases of defendants who are named but seemingly never charged. So if you want to be real precise, we're looking at 826 federal cases and 80 non-federal cases, again, as Margo referenced by the Metropolitan Police Department. So that's a, you know, that's, that's a lot. We're, we're, we're looking at quite a number of cases. Um, again, zooming out real broadly, looking at across the federal and non-federal cases. So looking across, what is that? 909 cases. We see that on average, people are about 40 years old. The exact median age that we're showing in our data is 40.5. So you can say 40, you can say 41. Majoritively male, uh, 773 uh, men, 126 women, and nine people who at least at this point, we can't determine their, their gender. And then, you know, race, again, this is not going to be a super surprise to every, anyone, but it's majoritively white. We're looking at 745 white defendants, 107 defendants whose race we, at least at this point, cannot identify um, because there's not, it's not in the record and we have no photographic evidence of them. 27 individuals who are Latino, 11 individuals who are uh, Black or African American, and seven individuals who are Asian. So again, zoomed out, if we're looking for the patterns, most of the things we're tracking are federal cases involving 40-year-old uh, white men. One of the things I'd like to talk about with both of you is is this question of the disparity in treatment between the uh, January 6th defendants and defendants in other types of prosecutions. And so, so Margo, as you mentioned earlier, you and I work on this database at The Intercept called Trial and Terror, where we track international terrorism prosecutions and, uh, you know, federal prosecutions of people alleged to have, you know, literal or ideological connections to al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups. Um, and, and what we see in those is something very different than what we see in the January 6th cases— 
you know, and this is this relates specifically to what you mentioned earlier, where, you know, there we're seeing a large number, if not half of the total in January 6th, being charged with misdemeanors, uh, which is not at all a common charge in terrorism prosecutions. Um, and what we're also not seeing in the January 6th data compared to terrorism prosecutions are um, a common charge that prosecutors bring known as making false statements or otherwise known colloquially as lying to the FBI. Um, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on, on this disparity in treatment, um, you know, given that I think we might be seeing something very different if it was a group of alleged ISIS associates who stormed the Capitol or maybe even a, a group of uh, black and brown Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrators. Well, an- another uh, difference that I see is that in the charges against the terrorists, the uh, international terrorists, there are so many sting cases, and here we there are no stings. And also, uh, here in the few cases that have gone to a conclusion, we see people who have actually had weapons with them, and weapons, you know. Weapons of mass destruction is one of the terrorism charges that could be brought, but it's it wasn't in this in this case. So there are differences. I I believe that these cases the similarities are in the rounding up of people who seemingly have little connection to many other things, uh, and that uh, both have kind of charges that. Now, looking at our cases in the trial and terror, they would have been considered misdemeanors, except that the extra allegation that people were somehow involved with an overseas group, even though they didn't go overseas, makes it a much tougher charge than being engaged with Oath Keepers or Proud Boys. Although it looks like this week that that, uh, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys are going to start having more... uh, Prosecutions will be involved with belonging to those groups, even though they're not known as terrorist groups. But in the hearings, they started to make it sound like they are similar to what would be called a terrorist group. Yeah, similarly, Michael, I mean, are you seeing disparities in the January 6th prosecutions compared to, you know, your research on J20 or the summer of 2020 prosecutions? Yeah, I mean, the comparison between the Floyd prosecutions is, is I think, apt because, you know, they're, they're both, you know, somewhat constrained events, uh, but, but, but they couldn't have been prosecuted in, in different ways. You know, the, the summer 2020 Floyd cases, you know, really followed some pretty clear patterns of overcharging and attempt to get, you know, plea bargains. We certainly, you know, had a lot of cases that were dropped, uh, especially at the non-federal level, but even at the federal level. We had these, you know, in the Floyd cases, we had these seemingly, you know, not in all cases, but in in many cases, seemingly minor uh, crimes, which were sort of saddled with the much larger um, political, uh, you know, ongoing. So, for example, you'd have a, you know, a, a document, a statement of facts document or an affidavit, which, you know, would talk about all of the destruction um, given to the Portland courthouse. And then when you got to the actual actions of that particular defendant, it was relatively minor. So you had this kind of individual saddled with a much larger and, you know, in a sense, scarier political context. Here you, you have, you know, something different in, in the capital cases where, you know, as Margot said, about half the people are charged with relatively minor crimes and, and we'll never expect to see uh, you know the inside of a of a jail cell, let alone a prison sentence. Um, so you know, you know, most of these people haven't been sentenced yet. But I just did a quick calculation on our you know length of prison sentence variable, and there are so many people that got no prison time that the actual a- the mathematical average is zero at this point, um, because you know most people uh, received no no prison time. So I think that that's certainly a, a major difference is that you know we don't have we, we have a handful of cases in which people have the potential of having multi-year sentences um, whereas in the Floyd cases if you look just at the summer ones you know most of those were, were pretty um, pretty steep charges and again a lot of them have been pled down but I think the vigor if I can say the vigor through which the Department of Justice and the United States Attorney's Office pursued those cases seems to uh, have been pretty pretty high. And, you know, the, as Margot said, the kind of investigative complexity of some of the summer 2020 cases was, was really quite, quite impressive. Whereas in the capital cases, you know, most of these things are a combination of monitoring people's own social media, 
people being snitched on by their friends and relatives, which is by far the most common way people seem to have been caught, and you know, simple geofencing of their phones and things like that. So the kind of like broad stroke investigative approach of the capital cases, you know, partially because everyone's constrained in the same physical area versus the, you know, deep dive investigations of the summer 2020 cases stands out to me as a really odd kind of uneven allocation of resources. I mean, that, that gets at one of these interesting aspects of the of the 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 Capitol riot, which is in many ways, it, it was the, perhaps the most watched crime ever in that, you know, all of these Americans and everyone around the world was watching this. But not only that, the, the people who, you know, allegedly stormed into the Capitol often provided much of the evidence against them, right, by recording themselves or um, being recorded by others. We are in the halls of Congress. We don't want war, but we're prepared to fight for our liberty. Um, and, and so in, in some ways, this becomes this enormous forensic investigation, right, that that these authorities have to have to take on. Is that what you're finding in most of the prosecutions? Yeah. I mean, you know, the evidentiary record, you know, often provided in the FBI uh, affidavits, you know, most of the time rely on media that the defendants produce themselves. So their own text messages, their own Facebook posts, um, you know, their own alt tech platform usage. And then, you know, the FBI is often just surveilling that and, you know, through open source intelligence methods or, you know, and I don't have a quantification of this, but I can tell you that in a lot of cases, the way people were identified from the, you know, from the BOLO lists or from the, you know, please help us ID these people lists is from their family and friends. You know, it's, it's, I mean, Margo can speak to this. It's so common to read these evidentiary statements and it says, you know, uh, so and so knew the defendant for two years as a coworker, or at, you know, at school or as a, you know, at church or whatever. And people are just being turned in in mass by their friends, family, and, and colleagues, which again stands in pretty stark contrast to the way the Floyd summer 2020 cases have been investigated. Um, you know, a lot of that was much more of this, you know, typical kind of CSI style forensic work. Um, you know, I've, for example, like I have not seen the word fingerprint in like any of the capital cases. Doesn't seem like that sort of police work was was really done because they had these other investigative tools like the geofence and um, cell phone beacons and Wi-Fi beacons and all the things because people are in the same area. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That so much of this material and evidence was in the public record, right, was on social media and elsewhere. It really allowed a lot of these, you know, kind of vigilante groups investigating the the January 6th uh, Capitol riot to kind of engage in a big way, right? Like sedition hunters being an example where they they find videos online, repost them. And, you know, for people that they, they can't uh, name, you know, unknown defendants, for example, they come up with, you know, cute nicknames for them based on their appearance. Like, you know, Bubba Chew Hats was a guy who had a hat on and then a, for some for some reason, another hat on top of it. And I have to admit that there's a I, I, there's a certain uneasiness that I feel about the kind of vigilante investigations that have happened and perhaps the way it may have influenced how the Justice Department has uh, handled these prosecutions. And I, I was curious what your thoughts are on that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I very much... Um, I very much am uncomfortable by it. And, and I want to be really clear. Prosecution Project uses open source data to track how political violence is prosecuted in U.S. courts. We are in no way whatsoever 
involved with identifying defendants. Um, I have in my in my you know academic work over the past year have been thinking a lot about this question, writing a lot about this exact question. Um, I have a as many academics do. I have a paper about to come out about this exact question, um, where in this sense, you know, what I'm looking at is the breakdown between people providing. So, so what, what I'm looking at is people who are identifying far right individuals, what we would call, you know, anti-fascist intelligence folks. And people in, involved with something like sedition hunters, which I would call, you know, crowdsourced policing. I, I find it really exceptional and, and wildly uncomfortable that kind of um, unaccountable, untrained, self-appointed folks have just begun identifying people on the internet based on, you know, oftentimes not super great evidence. Um, we've seen misidentifications. We've seen, you know, just other other ways in which this was done. And and for me, the larger point is that identifying someone on the internet in that way does not make you accountable to a community. You know, the difference between that and people who work to deplatform far right people is that that's done in conjunction with activists on the ground and a you know a, a community approach to to keeping one's community safe. And so I, I do think this kind of proliferation of sedition hunters type things is really problematic for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons is that it's blurring this line between people who are trying to destabilize and deter far-right activity and people who are basically doing free unpaid internships for the FBI. And, and I think if that's what people want to do, that's okay. But I think people need to be honest with themselves that that's what they're doing. They're doing free work for the police, and if if they think they're doing something else, then then they're a bit delusional. <laughs> yeah, I also um, noticed that in the criminal complaint statements, so often the FBI just credits and uses the vigilante group's work. I mean, and it is true that that there is some good work being done, but they the FBI. Statements include those nicknames that were given by the vigilante groups. And uh, it just seems very just weird that the FBI would use this as their evidence in the case and, and put it into the charging statements. It's, it's quite unusual. Because also most of those people who are the sedition hunters are for no reason anonymous as well. And, you know, maybe we could make up some little names for them, too, like the, the, uh, that, that are on their uh, Twitter handles. But it's an ano- more anonymous sourcing that is public. It, it's a quandary in my mind of how, how, how to approach, but it makes me really uncomfortable. I just say like that one, one of the like footnote, I mean, I would say untold stories, but we're telling it in this moment. So maybe it's not an untold story. But one of the untold stories of the Capitol riot is how so much of this mass data collection has occurred or has been carried out by, um, you know, what we can call early career professionals or, or, you know, non-trained individuals or students. So for the case of prosecution project, you know, most of his data has been done by undergraduate students, you know, in the case of, uh, you know, GW's program on extremism, who is doing a lot of the tracking too, that's, you know, again, student interns, you know, the people doing sedition hunters, I imagine a lot of those are, you know, younger people or, you know, not necessarily well-trained individuals in intelligence. And so, you know, there is a bit of an untold story about through you know, crowdsourced policing through platforms like Prosecution Project, where we're tracking this, how much of the knowledge that we currently have about January 6th has come from these kind of all-volunteer, you know, groups. I guess to me that raises this question of, you know, law enforcement and investigative resources for January 6th. I mean, obviously, like any organization, the FBI and the Justice Department have a finite amount of, of resources and time and agents. And, you know, what's happening, obviously, is that the Justice Department seems to be sending a clear message that were that there were two rough groups on January 6th, right? They're the ones who showed up and kind of acted more spontaneously and perhaps were swept up in the moment, as people might say. And then there were other groups, as we're beginning to know more about, such as the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, that are alleged to have been involved in a, a kind of conspiracy that took planning and, and a very organized effort to attack the Capitol. And, and I guess I wonder to what degree 
you know, these volunteer efforts to find people, including mainly the the more spontaneous actors, are putting pressure on federal law enforcement to use a lot of the resources that might otherwise be put to kind of, you know, piecing together the puzzle of this seditious conspiracy. But instead, they're, you know, running down somebody from Kentucky who, you know, stepped into the Capitol. And and I, I wonder to what extent you have opinions on, you know, how that might be shaping the, the law enforcement response. I mean, I think you know, programs like Sedition Hunters, and again, we're, we're giving them a lot of a lot of airtime, and and they're you know they are one of them, but there are a lot of these projects um, that are tracking them, and we can talk about the difference between them. But you know, one of the things they're doing is they're identifying, even if they're not naming, but they're identifying a large pool of individuals to identify. So they basically created a task list for law enforcement. And again, I think historically that's relatively new, where you know. People come up and they say, hey, here's, you know, 800 unknown individuals who committed this crime. And in a sense, it puts the pressure then on the FBI to identify those individuals. You know, I don't know of any other case in history where civilians came out and said, here's this giant pool of people that we're looking to identify. So I do think that the proliferation of those, you know, those sorts of platforms does put the pressure on law enforcement to then identify the people who were, you know, singled out. But but I think there's also a, another ethical gray area here, which is you know does showing up at a protest um, such as you know the the January sixth and and I would consider that a riot, but it, but it is still a political act. But is just showing up there to simply being in that presence, you know, mean that you end up on a website like Sedition Hunters? You know, like again, that that there, there's a low degree of accountability there. Um, different people had different levels of culpability, like you said. We have people who, you know, engaged in 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 extreme violence, and we have people who who did not. And I'm not sure that that distinction is properly made by you know crowdsourced policing efforts. And so I do think it's 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 putting some people on the FBI's radar who you know may otherwise not deserve to be there. And I do think it's spreading you know law enforcement resources in, in a very you know it's spreading that very wide. Um, and again, there, there's just so many different groups doing this from ones like sedition hunters who have gotten a lot of press and who are kind of seen as more legitimate to, you know, I remember this early one, um, called D I don't know if it still exists called detrumpify.org, which was, you know, doing something very similar of crowdsourcing. Um, and there was another one, the U S capital attack facial recognition project that was trying to do it, you know, using facial recognition software. So, you know, I think there's a lot of these efforts going on, and I do think they have to be having an aggregately negative effect on the police's ability to, you know, focus their investigative work. You know, in in watching the the recent uh, January sixth committee hearing, you know, one of the you know one of the key things that the, the committee appears to be highlighting is that the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, two extremist groups that were supporting Trump, played a critical role in the Capitol riot, um, and we also know that obviously from federal prosecutors who have charged the leaders of both of these groups and some of their members with seditious conspiracy. The the January 6th committee was was particularly interested and focused on a meeting the night before between Enrico Tario, the head of the Proud Boys, and um, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, and kind of framing this idea that there was perhaps some sort of, you know, conspiracy between them, or at least alliance of some sort, you know, going forward into January 6th. At the same time, though, you know, Liz Cheney and the members of the committee also seem to be pointing directly at Donald Trump, saying Donald Trump was leading and organizing and basically was the mastermind of this this conspiracy, this so-called attempted coup on January 6th. On this point, there is no room for debate. Those who invaded our Capitol and battled law enforcement for hours were motivated by what President Trump had told them, that the election was stolen and that he was the rightful president. But that isn't as far as the the prosecutors have so far taken this case. And I was I was wondering your thoughts on, you know, the disparity between what we know in the criminal record and what the 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 select committee seems to be suggesting so far in its hearings. Well, it seems to me that that they may have or are trying to uh, convince the public that they have some more information that is going to make uh, that connection apparent. And I don't think I've seen anything in the uh, charging documents or any of the documents so far of the of even the more recent seditious conspiracy charges against 
the the Proud Boys that that in any way connects that to government officials who are in office at the time. Yeah, I don't think so as well. And and again, one of the patterns that I think is interesting is that you know if you would have asked me on January sixth before we had done any of the tracking, kind of what percentage of the people who entered the building of the eight hundred or so people that entered the building. Um, you know, are part of an organized group or kind of came with an affinity group or, or coordination, I, I would have thought uh, a relatively large number. But, you know, we're actually not seeing that accusation as much as I would have expected. I was just doing some quick calculations when Margot was talking. But, you know, Leeson Prosecution Project, as the record stands today, we're only tracking um, 52 Proud Boys, 32 Oath Keepers, and 15 uh, three percenters. There, there's a couple other small groups in there. There's a couple members of Patriot Front and Aryan Nations and, and whatnot. But that's um, that's less than 100, right? And that's less than I would have expected. I would have expected a larger representation from organized unlawful paramilitaries or militias, um, from organized kind of far-right hate groups. Um, so that that to me you know, is surprising. And at this point, we know that if you know if if prosecutors had evidence that these that that individuals were part of groups they would have you know put that out by now so i think it's safe to say that the majority of uh, people are are not group affiliated which you know i think is a bit of a shock when you talk about the kind of larger conspiracy narrative certainly it seems that there was coordination and conspiracy within those groups so within the three percenters within the oath keepers within the proud boys and coordination amongst those groups but as far as the the kind of wider day's events, there there doesn't appear to be at least there doesn't appear to me at this point to be much coordination beyond those those kind of three core groups, which is probably why those are the groups which are receiving seditious conspiracy charges. You know, one of the you know certainly this has been going on for for a while, but I think where it reached kind of a fever pitch was during the Mueller investigation, where you have a lot of people online and on Twitter kind of reading the tea leaves and suggesting like what's going to happen next and and where this investigation leads, and and the the people doing that for January six, some at least you know you'll hear kind of talk of how this is kind of a slow moving investigation that like any kind of investigation of organized crime is flipping lower level people in order to kind of move up the ladder and eventually get to the top, right? And so that. You know, perhaps the, what we're seeing now with the Proud Boys and uh, and the Oath Keepers and the seditious conspiracy charges is not the end, but simply you know part of moving up that ladder. Um, and I, I was wondering what your take on that is, given your analysis of these cases. I mean, I think that makes sense. I think that you know some people by the you know by the charging documents you know are not going to be privy to any sort of useful information, right? There's, there's just a lot of people that clearly just walked in, wandered around, didn't know anyone and left. So I think, you know, getting some of those cases out of the way, you know, flipping some lower level defendants, I think is, is most likely the strategy and is almost always the strategy. And so, you know, you've already had some folks who have who pled guilty to the seditious conspiracy charges. You already have Proud Boys, you know, chapter regional leaders who have p- pled guilty. So I think that that's, you know, Part of this strategy, part of getting some of the some of those dominoes to start falling, um, I, I have to assume that the hope is that that pushes pressure up the ladder to people like Tario or Rhodes. But we're not going to know that for for quite a bit of time. Well, one thing that I am, as far as the charges and and the folks who have been uh, convicted, for example, where five have been convicted at trial, one one acquittal. That's it. Um, but those cases, for the most part, involved what was the most uh, brutal part of the takeover, which was we watched cops getting beaten and and uh, nearly you know killed, and and cops that committed suicide thereafter. And I would thought that so far there's like five convicted of that. I assume that some of the guilty pleas are that, but that doesn't seem to really be the focus of what the hearings are about. And I don't think that those people who really uh, did a violent crime on law enforcement officers, that doesn't seem to be the focus of all of, of most of the uh, uh, investigation and criminal prosecution and bringing, and these were the ones brought to trial. I, I may, may be guilty here of asking you to, to be pundits for a moment, but I, I'm curious what your take is on the likely effectiveness on 
the, what your take is of the likely effectiveness of the House Select Committee. You know, right now we're we're kind of living in this America where uh, you know a good portion seems to believe that Donald Trump played a role in in instigating the violence. Another portion that believes he had he had you know, really no responsibility for what happened. And, you know, like everything divided in America, we've got these two competing narratives. And it appears that, you know, by hiring a television consultant, the House Select Committee is trying to package its committee hearings in a way that will, you know, have some currency in our kind of, you know, among media bubbles and in social media and kind of in our very divided culture. And and I'm curious your take, given the the hearing so far, um, of how effective you think it will be or has been. I mean, I think it, again, I'll I'll take the kind of academic position, but, you know, I I think you'd first have to clarify, like, what your goals are. I think if your goals are seeing Donald Trump in a prison cell, then it's ineffective. Like, I I don't think that anyone believes that that's where this is headed. I think if the goal is to create a somewhat transparent public repository of known findings and knowledge on the events of the day, I think it's going to go well to, to, to meet that goal. Um, you know, I've submitted testimony. Many people I know have submitted testimony. You know, there's thousands of um, experts who have been asked and have put their thoughts down on record about, you know, everything from you know the role of specific extremist groups or technologies or individuals. You know, so unearthing this kind of subterranean knowledge and putting it all in one place to have a historical record about the day and 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 the context. I think it's going to be very successful in that. If people want to see it as a way to incarcerate the former president, I think they're foolish because I, I don't think our justice system is set up um, to, to accomplish that, nor do I think that's really in the interest of a lot of people. Well, in my mind, the question comes up of why these hearings are in no way related to there being increased charges for domestic terrorism. I mean, I, I and somehow in my imagination, I kind of thought that's what this was going to be about because there was such a topic of discussion for so long, but I guess the House bill failed, and and that does that seems kind of off the table. So we're still going to have this disparity of wacky charges for jihad people and and no uh, real domestic terrorism crimes being uh, put into the into the into law. I do have one point, and it's not broad bird's eye view. It's really, really narrow, and it's something I feel very strongly about, and that is making the court records that are public free. And we pay for those court records, and uh, there is a group called the Free Law Project that is uh, actively trying to do something about it by creating a, a tool that allows people to share the court records that they have downloaded from the federal court system. And it's a stopgap kind of way because it requires that one of us download it and then it's available for everyone. In this case, almost everything is available because Seamus used at GW and Michael and I, and I'm sure the New York Times and the Washington Post and USA Today, everyone that's in the media and studying this are downloading these documents. And then if you use the tool called Recap that comes from uh, the free law projects, then it's free. And it's just an example of why it should be free. And uh, I know that there are some changes going in uh, taking place in the administrative office of the courts to make the searching free, but then not the documents free. So I, I feel that it's really important that this point is being made and maybe it's coming across now to people like, oh, look, we had to pay for these documents that are actually been paid for because we pay taxes and it's, it's a federal document. Um, I'm, I'm very strongly in favor of changing those rules and of supporting the free law project. I would agree with that. I mean, a prosecution project couldn't effectively function without the use of um, court records and specifically through the use of recap. It's really makes a lot of our work possible that being said, and we have a you know we filed um, multi court exemptions, so we're exempt from a lot of court fees. But even with those exemptions, we still, as a totally unfunded volunteer project, spend thousands of dollars a year to access court records, which, as a tax paying American citizen, I've already paid for. Um, so it is always very frustrating that 
court records are resold to us um, to the tune of 10 cents a page and 10 cents a search, um, that is uh, certainly a barrier to creating uh, public knowledge and public scholarship about the way in which the federal court system operates. And there's a public interest in us understanding how the federal court system operates. And so, you know, moving that legislation through and making, uh, you know, making PACER f- uh, fee-less and making PACER free, I think should certainly be a priority of anyone who's engaged in criminal justice or public policy or or legal research in the United States. Um, and the fact that it's not, every time I explain how court records function in the United States, in the United States to someone who doesn't know, they're kind of aghast. So uh, yeah, anything we can do to make that more accessible, I think is in the public interest. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I tend to tend to view it as an example of like whatever revenue PACER and ECF bring to the government, it's got to be largely inconsequential. And so the fees are are mainly just a way to kind of keep, you know, keep a tighter um, uh, lid on government, you know, information, right? And so as a, as a journalist, I like, can reporting on agencies like the FBI and with the FOIA system being broken, you know, one of the few areas that we have to kind of look into these agencies are, are things like court records by looking at the cases they bring. And, you know, to me, it's kind of humorous that they're making you pay for these things, not so much because I, I don't think they need the money to keep the system in place. They certainly don't. It's just that they want fewer and fewer people looking at these records. That was Margot Williams, my colleague here at The Intercept, and Michael Lodenthal, the executive director of The Prosecution Project. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com forward slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to also check out Deconstructed, as well as Murderville, which is now in its second season. And you can find the podcast I hosted and reported, American Isis, on Audible. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Trevor Aronson. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.